All right, now take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I'm going to read the first um, three verses of John 14. John says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for an opportunity to open your word and to hear you teach us and to hear the words of our dear Savior and to be encouraged by his words. Guide us and direct us as we study, open our heart to receive the truth, and then help us to confidently walk and live in that truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So again, just a welcome to the college students. Um, uh, you, I think, met uh, separately uh, this morning. Jason and Stephanie Kelly head up our college and young adult ministry along with Nathan Hur and then Mark and Carol and uh, Carol Groman. Uh, they all do a tremendous job uh, with uh, that. You'll be encouraged, challenged, loved by them if you're part of that ministry, and I encourage you to do that if you're part of the fellowship. And I know that uh, at this time of the year, many college students are kind of looking for a, a church home, and we're glad that you've come this morning. But I also know it's a reality that you may or may not come back. It's just kind of the way it is for a variety of different issues or circumstances. So we are going to John's uh, text here in John 14, but before we uh, do that, I just want to give you a little bit of pastoral advice uh, to consider, uh, things that you might want to think about now while you're choosing, trying to choose a uh, 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 church home, or even after you graduate. I think certain principles that are very helpful uh, um, beyond your time in college. And I try to do this at the beginning of the year because, again, I know there are many people college students especially, trying to figure out where they should fellowship, uh, where they should attend, uh, and uh, my comments are primarily directed towards them, but they're applicable to a lot of other people, because I know there's always visitors in the room looking. There are people who are watching us online trying to decide whether they should come here or or not, and so what should you look for in a a new uh, church home? And uh, I, I think it's important. For us who've been here before, you've probably heard some of these before, but I think it's good for us just to be reminded what is important, what's important in a, in a local fellowship. So I'm going to start out with a kind of an ominous uh, statement, but to begin with, to choose a church home, I think, really is one of the most uh, important decisions you're ever going to make. I honestly believe that it not only affects your spiritual life now, but over the next few years. And I think that a church fellowship that you choose to be a part of could affect your life in total, your descendants, and their lives for generations to come after you. Now again, I know that sounds rather ominous, but it's true. The church fellowship that you choose to be a part of will affect your life now. It could affect your life in total, your descendants' lives, and for generations of those who come after you. There's a statement that I learned a long time ago. It says this. It says, Doctrine is received, believed, and practiced, determines one's character, behavior, and destiny. And the first time I heard that, I thought, that's just phenomenal. Doctrines received, believed, and practiced. The truth that you believe about God, that you receive them into your hearing, that, that you believe, that goes into your heart and then actually work their way into your hands and into your feet. Doctrines received, believed, and practiced determines one's character, 
that's who you are. Your behavior, that's how you are going to live. That's how you act. And then your destiny. Because what you believe about God determines how you live your life. And you better believe the truth about God, right? And and to the best of your ability. Because what you believe about God determines how you live your life. So I'm going to give you a number of them this morning. Number one, you want to make sure that you find a church where they put a tremendous emphasis on the truth. Find a church that puts a tremendous emphasis on the truth, a church that's faithful to the scripture, where the Bible, listen to me, where the Bible is the absolute authority in the room. The Bible is the absolute authority in the room. It's sufficient a source for all matters of life and godliness. To find a church that puts an emphasis on biblical teaching, biblical preaching, biblical training. A church that practices expositional preaching and then encourages you to apply what you have learned into your life. And expositional preaching at its simplest, I think, is just preaching that is focused on explaining the meaning of the scripture in its historical and grammatical context. Expositional preaching, rather than trying to take the Bible and bring it into the modern day, expositional preaching takes the modern day and brings it back into the time of the Bible. Because by creating the original setting of the text, the the word becomes a living event. And by taking the modern person back to the culture of the scripture, we can understand the truth biblically as it was understood by the original hearers and then apply that truth into our lives today. It's a tremendous mistake to ask the question, what does the text mean to me until we understand exactly what the text means? And a lot of people jump to the second one first. They, they get that, what does it mean to me? And they don't even know what it says. And we have to know what it says because God wants to be known. Expositional preaching is important because when it's faithfully followed, the expositor deals with what the text says verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and it results in the full counsel of God being preached. Therefore, it helps taking things out of context, verses out of context, ideas out of context. It helps not skipping over uh, difficult or controversial subjects that can't be uh, ignored or, again, just passed over with topical preaching. And expositional or expository preaching really goes beyond just teaching information. Uh, It does do that. It lays out biblical information very clear. But I think expository preaching marries the truth to the heart. Marries the truth to the heart uh, in in the lives of the people. Uh, Expositional preaching, you get the the you, Y-O-U, the you. God requires this of you because this is what God's word says. God expects this of you because this is what his word says. God's going to lift you up and encourage you if you do what God says. And so I think that's part of the genius of expositional preaching. Now, here's the truth. You, you don't need warm stories and entertainment. You don't need short sermons crammed with spicy illustrations. You don't need humor. You don't need contemporary cultural relevance that caters to your felt needs and that demands nothing of you. What you need is God's word, because all of us need God's word. You don't need preaching that is soft. You'll often hear around here somebody say that soft preaching produces hard hearts, and hard preaching produces soft hearts. Because hard biblical preaching forces us all to examine ourselves in the light of the scripture and see if we line up. Hard preaching, biblical preaching, it breaks down our pride, our selfishness, our self-centeredness. It brings us all into submission to the word of God. and makes us desire God more and desire to glorify him and to worship him. 
soft preaching, felt needs preaching, entertainment. That makes people hard because it only superficially wounds. It feeds people's self-centered preoccupations, and in the end it produces people that are self-centered and subjective. And there's way too much of that in the culture and way too much of that in the church. Self-centered, subjective people. So you don't need soft preaching. You need to have your flesh slain. And the new created you in Christ raised up and challenged to hunger and to thirst for righteousness and for a deeper relationship with God who towers over this pitiful world that's perishing. An expositional preaching of the word of God alone accomplishes that. Because every word that is found in the Bible, every word comes from the very breath of God. Therefore, that requires that we do detailed study. We give detailed attention to every word. We don't edit God. God is the one who wants to reveal himself. He wants to be known, and he's done so in the Bible. And for the most part, around here, uh, from the pulpit or any other place that we teach from, we work our way through just one book after another. One book after another, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, and literally year after year. I'm not sure what number today is in the 14th chapter of John. It's 90-something. Year after year, years in the book of Romans, years in the book of Matthew, and we're going back through Romans in the evening. A couple years in Colossians. I mean, just over and over again. It takes time. And we go slow because I always think that better that uh, slower is better than faster because by slowing down and working our way carefully through a text, we get to go deeper into that text. And deep biblical preaching produces deep, biblically thinking, biblically literate, biblically rich individuals who develop a deeper understanding of and a love for both God and Christ. Shallow preaching only produces what? Shallow people. Shallow preaching produces shallow people. And we desperately want to grasp God's truth. We want to understand the the depth of his compassion and the greatness of his love towards us and the power that is at work in us, his power. So find a church that puts a tremendous emphasis on truth. And if you're one of those on the other end, some of you are coming in for the first time, I got that freshman, and some of you are on the other end, I think you need to find a church before you find a job. I think it's that important. And if you come to me and go, well, it's not, not a big deal, there's lots of churches everywhere. There's lots of places that gather and put a sign on the front of their building that say church, but don't necessarily open the word of God. Most important decision you're ever going to make is the place you fellowship. Find a place that puts a tremendous emphasis on the truth. Number two, find a church that has a high view of sound doctrine. Find a church that has a high view of sound doctrine, one that holds to a, a firmly to a literal six-day creation, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the depravity of man, a proper understanding of Christ's work on the cross, a proper understanding of his death, his burial, his resurrection. Find a church that understands that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, a church that believes in the literal second coming of Christ, a church that believes in the ordinances and, uh, of uh, baptism and communion and actually practices these things. A lot of the big mega churches, quote unquote, big mega churches in the country don't practice communion and baptism. One, because it's too unwielding, because there's too many people in the room. It's kind of hard to serve communion to 30,000 people. And a second thing, they don't do the ordinances of baptism and communion because they don't want to be offensive to the unbeliever who might not understand what they're talking about, which is absolutely ridiculous 
Find a church that holds firm to sound doctrine, to the ordinances and practices, though. Number three, find a church that has a high view of God. Find a church that has a high view of God, a, a church that believes in the supremacy of God over all things. And all things means all things. Even the sovereignty of God over all aspects of salvation. A, a church that desires seriously to honor God uh, with their lives, with the people's lives, that realizes uh, their view of God uh, affects every aspect of their life. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Listen, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. A fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let me tell you this, God's not your homeboy. He's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He is not to be treated fivorously or trivially or casually. He is the most high God. He's the one to be feared. He's the one to be reverenced. And you have to appreciate his holiness, understand his holiness, and you have to have an absolute reverence for his person. For when a person has a high view of God, everything else in their life is going to fall into a proper place. When you have a high view of God, everything else in a person's life tends to fall into a proper place. So we all need to take God seriously. Number four, find a church that has a high view of Christ. Find a church that has a high view of Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, I would recommend you choose a church in which you would be a member and the pastor of whom you would hear by this one thing. How much of Christ is there in that church and how much of the savor of Christ is there in that ministry? How much Christ? I think I told some of you I went to a ceremony. I'll keep it very vague to protect the guilty. I went to a ceremony with my wife not too long ago where the pastor slash chaplain spoke for 45 minutes to some guys who were risking their lives who if you wanted to have an opportunity to share the gospel, it's probably those guys who put their lives on the line in the job that they were doing. Spoke for 45 minutes and never mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. And he was a quote-unquote Christian chaplain. I came away from that going amazing. (laughs) That was a feat I've never seen before. To have that kind of an opportunity and to fail in such a spectacular fashion. Perhaps only second to a large church in my neighborhood who one time dropped 100,000 Easter eggs out of a helicopter and then describe God as red, white, and blue, or purple, or whatever the color of Easter eggs are, or whatever. Right? Just nonsense. Find a church that has a high view of Christ. How much Christ is there in that church? How much of the savor of Christ is in that ministry? Paul told the Colossians, he said in Colossians 2 and 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you've been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. I absolutely guarantee you there are a lot of people in the quote-unquote church today that are being taken out and taken captive by the philosophies of men. I absolutely guarantee you. Because a great portion of the church and a great portion of the modern church and so-called leaders in the modern church have fully embraced worldly philosophies of men and they're bringing them in through the front door of their fellowship and trying in vain to put some kind of Christian veneer on top of it. Trying to Christianize paganism. 
And what they've done in doing that, by trying to address the newest, latest issue on the table, or whatever the cultural trend is, what they do is they take their way of people from the glory and the sufficiency of the person of Jesus Christ. When Christ is all you need. And what you need and what I need is a deeper understanding of him, a deeper and growing relationship with him. Because the more you know him, the more you love him. And the more you know him, the more you love him. That will affect every single aspect of your life, I guarantee you. Every single morning, the more you know the person of God, the person of Christ, every single morning you'll get up and the first thing you'll say to yourself is, Lord, help me to honor you this day. Help me to honor you in everything that I do, in my thoughts, my actions, my, my words. Number five, find a church that puts a high emphasis on the worship of God. Find a church that puts a high emphasis on the worship of God. Uh, again, not just on Sunday, but in all of life, all of life. Glorifying God, glorifying Christ in all things, in everything, every aspect of their life together and, and individually. Because worship is really an all-the-time thing, right? 24-7, as they say, kind of a lifestyle. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So our entire life is to be lived to the glory of God. Now, a lot of time when I say worship, put a high emphasis on worship, but immediately in people's minds it comes to the issue of, of, of music, and that's part of it, no doubt. So let me just very quickly address that, because I know that's a big thing for young people. It's a big thing for old people. But I just think we have a different perspective on it. The Bible calls us to worship God in spirit and truth. Jesus himself, John 4, 23, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Did you hear a repeated thing? Spirit and truth, spirit and truth, spirit and truth. So true worship is the response to the truth of God that he has revealed about himself on the pages of Scripture. So if we're going to have true worship and the worship of the true God, we have to have a proper understanding of who he is. That's why we put such a great emphasis here on the preaching of the Word of God. That's why we here at Cornerstone Bible Church unashamedly and predominantly sing hymns. It doesn't mean we never sing choruses. I mean, sometimes we do. We did today. But we place a high emphasis on, on, on hymns and a high emphasis on, on those because they usually have a higher emphasis on doctrinal truth. We also place a high emphasis on corporate worship, on congregational singing. Now, I'm not saying anything derogatory towards anybody else in any other style, but I just want you to understand why we do what we do here. It's with intentionality. Now again, praise courses, praise courses are very obviously very popular in the church today, and most of uh, uh, the praise courses are just simple personal expressions of worship. For the most part, there's not a lot of doctrinal content or biblical truth in most praise courses, because praise courses tend to be written with catchy tunes and catchy musical scores, and the music is driven by the instruments or by the band. Where congregational singing has a, with a high emphasis on hymns and doctrinal truth and corporate expression, the music is driven by you. You are the orchestra. You are the band. It's driven by the voices of the congregation. Now again, I'm not speaking against praise choruses. I'm 
We understand there's some good praise courses, just like we understand there's probably some not very good hymns out there. But as a general rule, hymns tend to be more biblical. They tend to be more deliberately didactic, and I use that word intentionally. Uh, They teach. They teach their didactic rather than praise courses. And we live in a sad time in the modern church where most of classic hymnody is in danger of being lost because, again, most churches don't sing hymns anymore. We sing a lot of hymns. We sing a lot of old hymns. We sing a lot of modern hymns. There's some good modern hymn writers out there. You know that, the Gettys, uh, Stuart Townsend, um, Matt Papa, etc., and so forth. They have great doctrinal content. They help us think deeply about the truth of Scripture and the truth about God and the truth about Christ. When it comes to music in the church, Colossians 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Here it is, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We need to be teaching and admonishing each other. And again, a lot of what is sung in the modern church today, a lot of what is written even, stirs the emotion, it plays to the feeling, but it really fails to carry out the mandate to teach and admonish. And a lot of what is sung in the modern church today is very repetitive, and it is intentionally so. It's intentionally built into the praise songs for the purpose of putting the intellect into a passive state while the worshiper musters up as much emotion as he or she can. That really is completely opposite to what the Scripture commands. Because worship through song is to be with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing. The truth is we want to inform you, not manipulate you. We, we want our music to stir the emotion. Yeah, that's true, but feelings can't lead worship. Our minds have to be challenged by the truth, encouraged by the truth, informed by the truth. And if we're going to sing one seven eleven song, meaning one, one line, seven words, 11 times over again, how great is our God... We probably ought to be informed somewhere along the way why our God is great and not just repeat the same thing over and over again. I'm not saying anything about that song. It's popped into my head. We don't want to just say words. I mean, when you sing, I hope you're really reading the words that we sing and challenging yourself. Am I really believe what I just sang here? Or I'm just doing it because I come in here and the first thing I do is I go into autopilot, right? Or am I actually entering, engaging into worship of the true and the living God? And I'm offering this truth to him because he's told me this is the reality of who he is by way of the scripture. Number six, find a church that places a high emphasis on evangelism. Find a church that places a high emphasis on evangelism. That has a desire to reach out with the gospel of grace to Everyone. Everyone that makes disciples, that's interested in reproducing themselves in the lives of others. And it's always, evangelism is always tied to sound teaching. It's, you can hand out tracts. I'm not saying don't do that. But it's always tied to sound teaching because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you're going to have to engage people. And I'm going to mention it here in a moment, but a lot of evangelism takes place in the home. That's the primary place to start if you have a family. Number seven, find a church you be a part of that loves each other, that actually cares for each other, that's genuinely uh, interested in the one another, is meeting one another's needs, that's gracious towards each other, 
that's not caught up in any kind of legalism or legalistic tendencies, a place that practices a, a sincere faith, a place that places a high emphasis on unity, a place where you feel like you can belong and minister and be ministered to. Number eight, if you're keeping count, find a church that practices church discipline. Church discipline, you know, that's not a very popular subject anymore. And most certainly not practiced by a vast majority of churches. But it's important because that's what God commands. God commands holiness in his fellowship. And again, it's not that anyone in the fellowship is perfect. We're not saying that. But the purpose of church discipline is always done out of love and it's always restorative. It's always an attempt to call people back to righteous living so that they might be restored to the fellowship. They might enjoy the blessings of the fellowship and the blessings of communion with Christ. Because the church that places, uh, that practices church discipline is a church that holds high regard for the word of God and a higher regard for the word of God than the opinions of men. Church that practices church discipline holds to a high regard for holiness, which expects it expects of its members. Because again, the very word church means what? Do you know what it means? Called out once. Oh, called out from where? Right? Separate from the world. Right? We're not saying we're perfect, but we shouldn't act like the world. We shouldn't look like the world. We shouldn't be like the world to reach the world. We don't want people in the world to stay where they're at. They're in a bad spot. Right? We said this last week, I think, right? We're called ambassadors for Christ. We represent our king in a foreign kingdom, a foreign land. Here's the message from our king. I don't have anything to tell you. You're in a whole lot of trouble, and my king says you better surrender immediately. Here are the terms. Surrender. That's it. I don't have anything else to say to you. Repent. Place your faith in Christ because judgment is coming. And I've, sent, I've been sent here by the king of kings to tell you here are the terms. Give up. That's it. There's no other option. We don't want people in the world to stay in the world. We want them to come out of the world. We want people to repent and place their faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the called out ones are separated from the world. We're not, again, not perfect, but we're not going to act like the world, live like the world, look like the world, and try to, in order to reach the world. Now, when you go to the issue of discipline, it's never easy. We understand that. Listen, it's always difficult for the one who's being disciplined, but it's always discipline or difficult for the one who's administering the process. If you are a father in this room, you know that. When my kids were young and I had to discipline them, I had to sit and think about appropriate punishment for the crime because I would tell them repeatedly that dads do not think in categories of punishment. Dad thinks in cate- dads think in categories of blessing because our desire is to bless our children. But when you are disobedient, when the command is this and you do that, then that's going to be a, pro- that's a problem. It needs to be addressed. And again, in the corporate con- context, in the God's family, we're called to do the right thing, even though it may be difficult in the time in which we live. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet with those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews twelve eleven. That's what we're looking for. That's the goal. That's the fruit we're looking for in discipline. A righteous character. A, 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 the righteous character of Christ that is produced by Christ in the life of a believer. Proverbs speaks repeatedly about the issue of discipline in the home. And again, the father is given that responsibility of disciplining his children. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. 
And again, if we fail as parents to discipline our children, it's evidence that we don't love them. When I hear some sappy guy come and say, well, I don't discipline my son because I love him too much, I think you are a fool. The reality is, it's not that you love your son too much. The reality is you hate your son. You have no, no love for him. It's good for children to be disciplined. I, I didn't do one, two, three with my kids. Did one. Here it is. This is the issue. Do what I tell you to do. One, two, three doesn't work. Johnny, stop. Please, one, two, three. I'm going to say it again, Johnny. Please stop. One, two, three. And on the third time, I'm really serious, Johnny, for the fourth time that you've just said that. And little Johnny's getting ready to run out in front of a dump truck. When I say stop, the issue is stop. Not stop in three steps. Now, it's a process. And in the, in the family, obviously, we've got to train our kids. I got that. But it's done out of love. The same thing in the church. Discipline in the family of God holds the same principle. It's never pleasant, but it's necessary at times. And it manifests, if it's handled properly, it manifests the care for a person. Why would you allow somebody who says that they're a follower of Christ to be involved in some kind of sin and just let them go off and do their own thing when you know that's going to cause their own personal destruction? Well, it's not my issue. Well, whose issue is it? If we're to care for each other in the body of Christ, if we're brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, if we're one family in the body of Christ, whose issue is it when you see on the spiritual level one of your friends in the congregation getting ready to run out in front of a dump truck? Is it somebody else's issue? Hey, hope it goes well for you. I'll go get the pastor and maybe he can discipline you. He can tell you not to run out in front of a spiritual dump truck, right? It's all of our responsibility for members of the body of Christ. Call people back. Don't go that direction. Please, I beg you, don't sin. It's demonstration of love. Number nine, find a church that practices biblical male leadership. Biblical male leadership. Not only biblical male leadership, that practices also biblical eldership. Where the leaders of the congregation are actually looking out for shepherding, praying for the welfare of each individual member in the congregation. Because male leadership is biblical. And simply stated, the modern promotion of female so-called pastors, quote-unquote, is a direct attack on the authority of the Word of God. That's probably a pretty hot-button topic issue, especially if you come from certain denominations in this country that come from the South and like to get wet. Think about that. you get it this afternoon. The modern promotion of female so-called pastors is a direct attack on the authority of the Word of God. In case you didn't get it the first time, I'll give it to you the second time. 1 Timothy 2.11 Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For, here's the reason, for it was Adam who was created first, then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. If God knows how to speak and words mean anything, the text says what it says and the text means exactly what it says. Do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. God created Adam first, then he created the woman. Look at the nation of Israel. Leadership of the nation of Israel was not from women, it was from men. Men were the leaders, not women. 
No woman in Israel had an ongoing prophetic ministry. No woman was a priest. No woman ever ruled as a queen over Israel. No woman ever wrote any of the Old Testament or any of the New Testament texts. God gave responsibility for spiritual leadership to men. Just like he gave the responsibility in the home, in the family, to men. In society, to men. Likewise, in the church, leadership is male. And in the history of the church, God has predominantly used men to lead it. The contemporary desires and contemporary non-biblical understanding of the role of women that is in the world should not be imported into the church. Godly gifted women who desire to honor the Lord and serve him is a good thing, but godly gifted women cannot say on one hand they want to serve God and honor him with their life, but then on the other hand say, I want to violate what God says, I want to step outside of God's design and plan for women that he's laid down very clearly in the Bible for his church in order to serve him by becoming a woman, quote-unquote, elder or a woman, quote-unquote, pastor. It is completely illogical, not even to mention unbiblical. The issue is role and function. Role and function. Without making one inferior to the other, God calls upon both men and women to fulfill the roles and responsibilities that he has designated for them. The issue of role and function is tied to the created order, not the giftedness. God created the man first, then he gave him headship. Then he created the woman. And God created the woman to be the man's helper. And I've said this to you before, this congregation, at least this word helper is an exalted title in the Bible. Because God himself is often referred to as the helper of his people in the Old Testament. Psalm 54, verse 14, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In fact, 16 out of the 19 times that the word is used in the Old Testament, it describes God. And certainly we would understand God not being as a helper. He's not weak or inferior. Uh, the word actually points to strength, God's strength. Helper means, and especially when you're related to God, it means he has what his people lack. He's their helper. He has what they lack. So a believing woman is in full spiritual uh, equal of a believing man. Again, having value and dignity and honor and worth, created in the image of God, image bearer, co-equal in the realm of salvation. Yet just a different role and function than a man. But she has what that man lacks. She compliments him. That's why God ordained marriage. But in the matter of ruling in the home, in the matter of ruling in the church, God has established headship with males, with men. Again, there is no such thing biblically as women pastors. There's no such thing biblically as women elders. In the dimension of spiritual possession and privilege, both are absolutely equal. There's no difference. But God's church, and I might remind all of us that the church actually does belong to him. In God's church, there's a difference in role and function. You see that also in the members of the Godhead. You see a difference of role and function. And listen, rather than the position that I've just laid out for you demeaning women, rather than jumping to the place that a lot of people go, well, you just want to keep women uh, ignorant, barefoot, and pregnant, as they say. What you have to understand, that mentality was the mentality to which Paul, Paul speaks to. That's the cultural mentality at the time. That was the cultural mentality of the men in the early New Testament church in that era. 
the Jewish flavor, not the church, but the Jewish flavor. Because women didn't attend festivals. They didn't go to the feasts. They didn't go to the festivals. Most rabbis refused even to speak to women. They didn't even give a woman a greeting. They saw it as a quote-unquote waste of their time to give a woman instruction. And when we start understanding the Bible for what the Bible says and set aside the cultural things that are always pressing their way into the, into the culture and trying to press their way into the scripture, it's only biblical Christianity. It's only biblical Christianity that elevates properly the status of a woman. It's only biblical Christianity that elevates the status of a woman to a position she never knew in the ancient world and to a position where most women in the world today don't know, don't enjoy Because even around the world today, most women are treated as nothing more than slaves, nothing more than property, possessions owned by their husbands, looked down upon as less than equal by men around them. It was the Apostle Paul who said this. Now listen in that context. Let the woman learn. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Because Paul says biblical Christianity is going to elevate the woman. Let her learn. Again, it's unique in the time. Again, it's even unique in the day in which we live in much of the religious settings around the world. Let the women learn. Let them be a part of the learning process. Let them learn about God. Let them learn about Christ. Let them learn about salvation. Because, again, they're co-equals in the realm of salvation. The only thing, Paul says, I don't allow them to take authority over a man. It's a role and function. I don't allow them to take authority over the role of men in the realm of teaching. Let a woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer a woman not to teach nor usurp authority over the man, but to be silent. Don't allow a woman to teach or exercise because the man was created first. It's headship. I would be remiss if I didn't remind you all of the fact that Jesus, although he was a Jewish rabbi, taught women. Other rabbis, other Jewish rabbis wouldn't teach women. The Lord did. In fact, it was the woman, back in John chapter 4, the woman at this well of Samaria, uh, that he first revealed the fact that he was the Messiah, and he did that in a very open manner. He not only revealed the fact that he was the Messiah, but he discussed with her topics such as eternal life and the nature of true worship. Christ himself elevates the position of a woman, which, again, non-Christian religious systems around the world today don't do that. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a time where the position of women in the culture is completely under attack. That's in part of all this transgender madness. Womanhood is under attack. Not only is womanhood under attack, I mean, we have Supreme Court justices, am I not correct, who can't even stinking define what a woman is? Oh, good, you're qualified to be on the Supreme Court. Good, good, we're very happy with you. Thank you. When you abandon the word of God, the abandon of the truth, then it's just Katie bar the door and anything is open to everything. When there's no standard, when the Bible isn't the, isn't the standard, there is no standard. You just create it up, and that's exactly what we're doing in the culture, and that's why this culture, not to run off topic like I would do that, that's why this culture is under a Romans 1 judgment. It's the wrath of God's abandonment upon a culture who's abandoned him. He's returned the favor. This is what depraved minds look like. Thank you very much. Make another bad decision. And another one. And double down on the bad ones that you just made. 
womanhood is under attack by this transgender madness. There's only two genders, by the way. We can go back to Genesis 1 and work on that at some other point. But we also live in a time where male leadership is attacked. Male leadership is looked down upon. And sadly, much of the modern church is confused over both of those issues. As most of the modern church has brought the unbelieving mindset into the church, quote-unquote, setting aside the authority of the Word of God. And in its place has allowed a radical, unbiblical, anti-male, feminist agenda to enter into the church and create chaos and confusion regarding the role of both men and women in ministry and in the home. An unbiblical agenda that encourages women to be bold, to be assertive, to be confrontive, to be independent, to exercise authority, to take male leadership roles that do not belong to them. And on top of all of that, they want women to act like men. Which is utterly tragic, not only biblical, but unbiblical, but utterly utterly tragic because women are ill-served to be cast into the roles which God never intended them to be a part of. It's only in the word of God that God's intended design for women can be found. And it's only in obedience to the word of God that women can finally realize their potential, her potential. A woman can find her potential, her full potential, by following the plan of her creator, the desire and uh, the design of her creator, the design of uh, her designer, if you will. It's only by following the word of God that a woman can give glory to God properly and do what he has created her to do specifically. And listen, God has given women the unique privilege. Listen, did, did I say that correct? God has given women the unique privilege of bearing children. Men don't have babies. Okay? God has, thank you very much. Just want to see if anybody's awake out there. Birthing persons? See Romans 1. God has given women the high privilege of bearing children, listen, and them being the primary instrument of evangelism in their child's life. Loving them, teaching them, continually pointing to the person of Jesus Christ, which is something they cannot do if they're not in the home. Now, I got it that sometimes women got to work. I'm not begging that issue at the moment. But I'm saying if you have the privileged position of staying home, we have five kids. I watch my wife's job. I don't want my wife's job. (laughs) Amen. I love it when there's women's night out and the men have to watch the kids. (laughs) Yeah, now we come to a little more understanding of reality, right? But you have the unique privilege of raising up another generation of godly men, godly women. Again, I'm not against handing out tracts, but start evangelizing in the home. You have a captive audience, literally. Every time my kids disobeyed when they're little and were brought... Well, when they were brought to the the board of judgment, (laughs) I told them they have one job, that's obey. They don't have to get up to go to work. They don't have to make sure the car is working, the air conditioner is They don't concern about any of this. They just need to obey. And when they can't, which they can't, but they're still going to obey, I guarantee you, okay? But when they can't obey, then there's an opportunity for you to share the gospel with them. Here's the reason why you can't obey. Because you're a sinner, you're separated from God, you need the person of Jesus Christ, you need to repent. And I've told you that before, some of my kids heard the gospel thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times. Some of them just a few hundred. But 
Repetition is helpful. So find a church that practices biblical male leadership. My goodness. Understands God's ordained roles, the ordained roles of men and women. Understands the authority of God, doesn't compromise with the culture. Knows how to speak God's word. Understands that God knows how to speak his word. He actually means what he says. Doesn't stutter. Last one. They're going good. Whew. And just in case you wanted to know, this is just the introduction. This isn't even the sermon yet. We're still going to John 14. Yeah, I hope you didn't put the meatloaf to cook too, uh, too hot. Number 10, find a church where each individual member of the congregation is exercising their spiritual gifts in the body, where everybody's working. I, I don't see in the lists of spiritual gifts, and there's several, several places in the scripture, I don't see that I have the gift of being a spiritual spectator. I'm a pew dweller. That's my gift. I don't do anything. That's not the way it should be. Find a place where the members of the congregation are exercising their spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, a place where you can do likewise, a place where you can serve, love each other, grow, because you need to be actively involved in serving one another. talk about a lot. There's no John Wayne mentality in the Bible. We're all part of it together in the body of Christ. So don't just go someplace and hide out for four years. Be actively involved. And I think those uh, college students in front of you who have been here for four years and have been actively involved, they would say a hearty amen to that, right? Maybe not? Yeah? <laughs> there was your chance. There you go. And look, no, no, no person's perfect. No church is perfect. We're all in the process. But we just want to honor the Lord around here. We, we just want to honor Christ. We want to see Christ be made much of. Now, again, I know that's a lot, and I know some of you are going to go, man, whew, I'm never coming back here. Okay, you know what? God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful life. I honestly do. But don't just have a wonderful life. You know, we're not Jimmy Stewart. Ha- have a good and godly life. Honor the Lord with your life. Right? It's been good to know you. If we can help you anywhere along the way, let us know. If you decide to stay, that's even better. We'll get to know each other more uh, as time goes on, Lord willing. All right? I promise you, John 14, three verses. This is our second time in, in John chapter 14. Again, 90-some whatever sermon it is, I don't remember. And, and one writer aptly says, when you come to the top of this chapter, he says, we're standing on the preposes of, of the darkest night in the history of the world, right? We're, we're right there at the cliff at the darkest night. We're just hours away before the Lord's going to be abused, hours before he's going to be tormented, tortured, tortured, ultimately crucified. We're Thursday night in the upper room. And the Lord has already revealed the fact that one of his followers is going to betray him. Then he's also said that Peter's going to deny him. And then ultimately they're all going to forsake him and flee from him. And the Lord repeatedly has said that he's about to depart from them, that he's leaving. Back up in John 13, verse 1, John said this. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. So he's about to leave. He loves them with a perfect eternal love, a love because he loves them. He wants to comfort them. He wants to give them final instructions because, again, he's going to soon depart from them. And he's repeatedly told them that he's going to be delivered up to the chief priests, the scribes. He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be uh, delivered to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him and scourge him and crucify him. Then he's going to raise from the third day. They're not listening to any of that. Uh, they can't hear that. They can't bear to hear that response with that, that reality about, about what is to happen to their dear friend. 
Uh, and I think in part we understand that, especially if you've suffered the loss of someone close to you. Uh, you understand the pain of separation, and these guys just can't deal with it. They don't want to deal with it. They cannot, and they won't make it compute in their mind. I mean, they believe he's the Messiah. I mean, they, they really believe, right? All, they have these grand messianic hopes, expectations. Uh, they believe that Christ is going to set up his kingdom and put uh, down all of Israel's enemies at any moment. And why would they not in the context? We're Thursday. What happened at the beginning of the week? The triumphal what? Entry. He comes into Jerusalem on the back of a fold of a colt, a fold of a donkey, right? He's uh, got thousands, hundreds of thousands of people crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. People are prostrating themselves before him. They're throwing their garments down for him to walk over, laying down palm branches. They're welcoming him as the conquering king, the Messiah of Israel. But in the midst of that, he starts saying, look, I'm going to go. And not only that, I'm going to die. They just can't contemplate it, can't compute it. And again, not only that, the Lord has said, look, I'm going to leave and you can't follow me. So Thursday evening here in the upper room, as I said last time, the place is really filled with emotional turmoil. The hearts of his disciples are anxious, in despair, fearful. Some writers said this, they were like drowning men in a sea of sorrow. That's a great picture. They're focused on them and they're focused on their sense of loss. Therefore, they need to be encouraged to trust Christ because he loves them. And because he loves them, he's told them, let not your heart be troubled. That word troubled, agitated, disquieted, restless, literally shaken, struck with fear, dread, anxiousness. And I told you the command is really stop letting your heart be troubled. Stop letting your heart be fearful because he knew there was trouble already in their heart, trouble in their spirit. He knew they were in shock and horror. And Christ wants to give his followers peace. Look down at verse 27. John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, I do not give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Peace I leave with you. This section that starts in John chapter 14 goes all the way to the end of John chapter 16. And it's one big long word of hope, encouragement to those who follow Christ. In John chapter 16, 33, the last portion of this section It ends with these words. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Christ wants his followers to have peace. And the only way that a man or a woman can have peace in a troubled world, listen, is if they have their focus completely on the person of Jesus Christ. Because it's only faith in the person of Jesus Christ and his promises that can provide anybody comforting, anybody comfort who's struggling with a troubled heart. The only way that a man or a woman can have peace in a troubled world is if they have their focus clearly on the person of Jesus Christ, because it's only faith in the person of Jesus Christ and his promises that can provide anybody comfort who is struggling with a troubled heart. You weren't here last week with us, or if you weren't with us uh, last week, you didn't know this, but I'll tell you, we spent the entire sermon on verse 1, the entirety of our time. And we went from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture to Scripture to Scripture to Scripture to see how God commands his people not to be afraid, to not be fearful, to not to be anxious, but to trust God, believe God, believe his word, no matter what the situation Whenever we find ourselves troubled and disturbed, it's because we've taken our focus off Christ. We've taken our eyes off Christ. 
And we put them on things that have allowed our flesh to take control of us. So if you weren't with us last time and you're somebody who struggles with troubled in spirit and being fearful or anxious, I think we all do at certain points of our life. It's a common malady. You might do yourself well to pick that sermon up and listen to it. Because God wants his people to have peace. God wants his people to trust him. God who is sovereign. God who is sovereign. We read a psalm. We sang a song. God who is sovereign over all events, over the world. God who is the God of all comfort. God who is the compassionate and gracious God. God who works all things out for our good and for his glory. And here in the context, the soon departure of Christ from his disciples. He's not abandoning them. He's leaving for a purpose, and he's going to explain that to them. And and the reality is, as we see as we work our way through the study, it's really going to be to their advantage that Christ goes away. Now, again, from their perspective at the time, it's something they don't understand. And I think from our perspective, it's something we also fail to quite get our grasp around. Because as wonderful as the physical presence of the person of Jesus Christ is to his disciples, it's much better to have the permanent indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. Something that Christ is going to promise to do. Someone who's, whom he's going to send here just a little bit later in chapter 14. The comforter, the helper. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I told you the first believe is in the indicative. It's a statement of fact. In essence, you already believe in God, which again was true of the nation of Israel on a whole and is most certainly true of these men who are in front of him. But I also told you this God in whom they believed they'd never seen. No one has because God is invisible. He's a spirit. Nobody's ever seen, but yet they believed in him because God's people are always called to walk by faith, not by sight. So Christ is telling his 11 true disciples in front of him, stop letting your heart be troubled or fearful. Since you already believe in God whom you cannot see, believe also in me. Now the second believes is a command, it's an imperative. It's not a command of salvation because these men had already repented, they have already been regenerated. He's just saying, believe me, trust me. Trust me even when I'm no longer in your presence. And even when you can no longer see me, stand firm, don't lose faith. Continue to believe now in the visible Christ who you can see, but continue to believe in me even when I depart. Trust what's about to unfold. Trust me. Still believe. Believe also in me. Peter says we as believers, we do that all the time. First Peter 1 and 8. Although you have not seen him, you love him. Although you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Again, Christ is the only remedy for the troubled heart. And it's true for these men, it's true for us. Keep your focus on Christ. You already believe in God. Believe in Christ. So again, if you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're confused, fearful, perplexed, if you're in need of comfort, the only, listen to me, the only answer to your dilemma is Christ. Childlike faith in Christ. Childlike trust in Christ. Placing your focus completely on Christ, all of your heart on Christ, all of your mind on Christ, all of your soul on Christ, all of your thoughts on Christ, all of your hopes on Christ. Because if you trust God, the God who is all-gracious, all-loving, all-compassionate, all-comforting, sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, the ruler of the universe, if your focus is on him and your focus is on Christ, his son, who is co-equal, what do you have to worry about? What do you have to worry about? 
That's why Paul asked that rhetorical question in Romans chapter 8, when he says, look, if the God of the universe is on your side, if God's for us, then who can be against us? We just all need a proper perspective. We just all at times need to be refocused in our vision upon Christ, always, often. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, there's a lot in these verses, and we don't have a whole lot of time. So we'll move through it kind of quickly and just kind of give you some highlights to something to think about throughout the week. If you're keeping notes, good luck. But if you are keeping notes, we wanted point number one is hope and comfort is found in trusting Christ. Point number two, which is coming, there's comfort in trusting in Christ's promises. Hope and comfort in trusting Christ, number one. Number two, there's comfort in trusting in Christ's promises. So again, the disciples are confused. They're anxious. It says he's leaving, he's going away, they can't follow him. They, they know he's the Messiah, they're convinced he's the Messiah. They don't have a concept, a category for his death. He says he's going to leave, their hearts are gloomy. I'm going to go, you're not going to be able to follow me. Again, he's speaking about the events that are about to unfold the next day. They don't know anything about it. He does. We have a perspective looking back. They don't know what's coming next. He does. Trust me. And in their grief, again, he senses that. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. So again, with a tremendous amount of compassion, he's saying, don't worry. Keep, keep your faith. Keep your faith in God. Keep your faith in him. Again, God has never let you down. He hasn't done it before. He'll never do it in the future. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you before I go to prepare a place for you. So again, he's not just leaving to get away from them. He's going to prepare something for them. He's going to get something ready for them. In my Father's house, Jesus' favorite name for God was my Father. In the presence of the one whom he had spent eternity. The one who had sent Jesus into the world to reveal the Father, to disclose the Father, to make him known. Jesus is going back to him. In my Father's house. Now, it's a term that John, or that Jesus used back in John chapter 2. In that context, he spoke of the temple. But he's not speaking about the temple here. He can't be, because Jesus has already pronounced a, a doom on the temple. Jesus said the Jews had perverted the worship of the temple, had become apostate. Jesus said this temple that they're standing in front of is going to be torn down. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. Numerous passages of Scripture reference that. That's exactly what happened just a few centuries later, or a few decades later, really, just a few decades later. Romans come to destroy Jerusalem. They tear down the temple. Not one stone is left upon another. So when Jesus is talking about my father's house here in John chapter 14, he's not talking about the, the temple. He's talking about heaven because that's where the father lives. One commentator says this, sometimes heaven is called a country because of its vastness. Sometimes heaven is called a city because of its large number of inhabitants. Sometimes it's called a kingdom because of its ruler and order and its structure. Sometimes it's called paradise because of its beauty. And he says sometimes it's called a house because of its family. And heaven is the father's house. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Again, where's the Father's house? Heaven. John seven thirty three. Jesus says, For a little while longer I'm with you, and then I go to him who sent me. Where's, where's him who sent me? Okay. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father. 
Jesus, knowing that God had given him all things in his hand, that he come forth from God, was going back to God. Jesus says, look, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll come later. Where's the Father? Where's the Father, right? Uh, John 14, 12, I go to the Father. Verse 28, I go to the Father. Verse 5 of chapter 16, I'm going to the Father, to him who sent me. Chapter 16, verse 10, I go to the Father. Verse 17, I go to the Father. In my Father's house, where's the Father's house? In heaven. Then he says there are many dwelling places. If you have the authorized version, it says many mansions. Monet is actually the word. Just means stayings, abidings, dwellings, abodes. It's not mansions in the sense that we would think of some kind of expansive dwelling place in particular. Not, not just a big house. That's not kind of it. It just means there's many dwellings. Uh, there's many rooms. In, in, in the Orient, in the, in the Eastern, the, the picture here is, is this. When, when uh, a father, he'd build his house and his family would live in it. And then when his children grew up and, and they got married and had their own families, um, the, he'd just add another room. Another room and another room. And the Father's house just keeps getting larger and larger and larger. More rooms and more rooms are being places. More are being added. More dwelling places. More apartments uh, to the family compound, if you will. In my Father's house in heaven, there are many dwelling places. Again, it's a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of the reality that God has called many to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And there's room for everybody. All whom God, by his infinite mercy and grace, has chosen to save. All are going to dwell with him. Book of the Revelation says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. He's going to wipe away all their tears. There's going to be no longer any death, no longer any mourning, crying, pain. These first things have passed away, right? God is going to bring us to himself, man and God eternally dwelling forever, and again, unbroken, unhindered fellowship in the Father's house. In my Father's house and many dwelling places, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Well, you know, you have to sit down and put your pen down and you're, you're thinking about this and go, man, that must be some place. Right? How long did it take God to create the universe and all that's in it? Six days. Spoken into existence by the power of his word. Jesus Christ has been gone for 2,000 years working on this abode that he has for his people. It's got to be some place. Right? The Bible says it is. It's a place of incredible beauty. God has been preparing a habitation of his people in heaven for 2,000 years. I won't read it all to you. I'll just give you the highlights. Revelation 21, 18. You can read it later. The material of the wall is jasper. The city is pure gold, like clear glass. Foundation stones of the cities. The walls are adorned with every kind of precious stone. And there's like 12 precious stones listed. The gates are pearls. Each one is a single pearl. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. There's no temple, and the Lord uh, God, the Almighty, the Lamb, is the temple. The city has no need of sun or the moon to shine upon it because the glory of God is illuminated. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring glory to it. In the daytime there shall be no night. Its gates will never be closed. I shall bring in glory and honor of the nations to it. Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination or lying ever shall come into it, but only those whose names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation chapter 21, verse 18 and following. It's a tremendous place. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And I thought it was kind of odd how he said it. If it were not so, I would have told you. It seems like a little bit of an odd phraseology, but I think if he says when, he, when he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He's just saying, look, trust me. Trust me. Trust my promises. Because I always tell you the truth, and only the truth. Now, again, the guys are discouraged, right? They're discouraged at the moment. They're having a hard time believing anything that he's saying. Then he again says, trust me. 
I'm telling you the truth. And not only am I telling you the truth, in just a couple of verses, in verse 6, he's going to say to these guys that he is what? He is the truth. Right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes above but my me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare or really make ready a place for you. Verse 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also or be also. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe God. Believe in me. I've got it covered. We're going to be separated. I'm going to leave, but it's not for very long, I promise. I go to prepare a place for you. And verse 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Now that phraseology, I will come again, is eschatological. It refers to end-time things. And he is reassuring them that whatever happens next, again, they don't know what's coming in a few hours. He does. He's anticipating the cross. He's reassuring them that his death upon the cross is not going to derail their hopes of eternity with him. He's reassuring them that they're correct, that he is the Messiah. However, they have some presuppositions and misconceptions that need to be corrected. He's going to come and reign as a conquering king, amen? He's going to come and he's going to reign as a conquering king, but not until he becomes the suffering servant. So he's trying to assure them that their expectation of eternity in his kingdom is not vain. His impending death is not going to change anything. They just need to trust him. They need to believe. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Again, it's a day of great hope for the believer. Now, I said that phrase is eschatological, and it is, but now we have to understand where does it fit in. Where does it fit in? The truth is Jesus is coming again, Acts chapter 1, verse 2. At the ascension, after these things, uh, he said these things, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, a cloud received them out of their sight. They were gazing intently at the sky, the disciples, and they, as they departed, two men in white uh, clothing stood behind, beside them, saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up to you in heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go to heaven. He's coming back. That's true. And the Bible says that the second coming of Christ is going to be a day of terror for those who reject him. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. He'll come back and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. His, his return in the second coming is a comfort for those who believe upon him, but an absolute day of terror for those who rejected him. But that's not what's going on here. This isn't the second coming. Remember I told you this is a tremendously wonderful portion of Scripture. It's full of theology like all of John. We don't have time to unfold it in full, but I'll, let me just give you a little bit to think about. Listen to what the Lord's actually saying here. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If I go, again, literally, physically, depart from the earth to heaven. If I go to prepare a place for you, listen, I will come again. I will come again, literally, physically, depart from heaven to the earth. Uh, it's in the present tense. It doesn't say he's going to send angels. It says he's going to come, him personally. Now, some commentators have taken this uh, and tried to interpret it to mean that Jesus is coming for the believer at death, but the Bible doesn't support that. There's no interpretation in the Bible, no scripture that has that kind of support for that kind of idea. Uh, if you wanted, in uh, Luke chapter 16, where it says the rich man and Lazarus, there's a reference to angels coming for a believer. 
But when you see Jesus in reference to a believer in death, he's waiting for their arrival. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 56, at the stoning of Stephen. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, waiting for Stephen. So again, I will come again, again, literally, physically, depart from heaven, come to earth. Present tense, and why is it in the present versus the future? Well, because in Greek, if you wanted to say something that could never be refuted, something that was so positive, you'd use the present tense to verify a future reality of a, of a future absolute. In essence, a promise. It's absolutely certain. It's so absolutely certain, it's, it's as if it's already happened. So when he says, I go and prepare a place for you, I will come. It's really, I am coming. I am coming. And I'm going to receive you to myself. Uh, the word receive, uh, paralambano, it means to take to one's side, to join to oneself, to be a companion. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again. I'm going to receive you to myself, at my side, as my companionship, that where I am. Now, where is he? When he departs, where is he? Heaven, thank you. So I want to make sure you're paying attention. There you'll be also. So again, what is he telling these guys? He's saying, look, in, in, in the context, don't worry about the fact that I'm leaving because I'm going to personally come back and get you. I'm going to receive you to myself. I'm going to take you to my Father's home, which is in heaven. And that's exactly what the Bible says. The Christ is going to return at some point, take his bride, the church, his people, to the location that he has prepared, which is not the earth but heaven. The Bible says that once the bride is gathered, the church is gathered, then will come the purification, which happens at the beam seat judgment. Then the wedding feast, which occurs before the second coming, and at the second coming is when Christ comes back as the conquering king. So where I am, there you may be with me also. It means we're never going to be out of his presence. We're going to be wherever he is forever and ever. Now again, what he's saying here is complete contrast to the second coming. Because at the second coming, Christ comes and destroys utterly all of his enemies. And Christ comes and establishes his kingdom on the earth. And when Christ returns at the second coming, listen, no one is coming from earth to heaven. At the second coming of Christ, no one is coming from earth to heaven. There will be some saints who make it through the time of the tribulation, tribulation saints, who go into the millennial kingdom, but no one is coming from earth to heaven at the second coming. But here, Christ says in John 14, he's going to return. The disciples can absolutely count on it. He'll come for them. For them, all true disciples, for us. And he's going to come and he's going to take them to be with him forever. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Again, in his Father's house in heaven. What, how do you fit this into eschatology? The only category that can fit in biblically is the promise of the soon coming return of Christ at any moment is the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazo, caught up, seized, carried off. That's where we get our uh, uh, English uh, idea of rapture. Snatched away. They'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We shall be with all, always be with the Lord. So again, when Christ comes from heaven to the earth at the time of his second coming, it's different than the time of the rapture of the church because when Christ comes from heaven, everybody's coming with him. Revelation nineteen fourteen: the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. At the second coming of Christ, no one's going uh, to heaven. 
People are coming from heaven with him. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again. It's a doctrine of the rapture, and I understand the doctrine of the rapture has kind of fallen on hard times, but a lot of other doctrines have fallen on hard times, but the doctrine of the rapture has always been the hope of the church. The imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment. It's a doctrine that glorifies God, glorifies Christ, encourages God's people to have the hope that Christ could soon come for them at any moment. I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I'll admit to you right up front, it's in seed form there, but it's there. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the imminent return of Christ. Again, the second coming of Christ comes at the end of the tribulation, at the uh, 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 time where God pours out his wrath. God's not pouring his wrath out on his people. It's another topic for another day, I know, but the hope of the church is heaven, not tribulation. The hope of the church is, is rescue. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. God doesn't take the bride of Christ and beat her up in the tribulation. He rescues. He redeems. It's really hard to believe that the church was going to go through the time of the tribulation that he said, let not your heart be troubled. You know, it's going to get really tough. And if you guys are all going to go through the tribulation, then you probably ought to be troubled a little bit because it's a pretty scary time. But he doesn't say that. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm coming to get you. It's a promise. Have hope in me, hope in the truth, hope of heaven. Again, have a confident hope in the midst of every situation, circumstance that you find yourself in. Look to Christ. Turn your gaze upon him and him only. Believe everything that he says. Trust in him. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for the promise of Christ, the promise of your word that points us to the person of Jesus Christ. Again, he's coming for his people. Well, it encourages our hearts to say, don't let our hearts be troubled. Believe in you. Believe in God, we do. And believe in Christ, and we do. What wonderful truth. Trusting in you. Believing your word. Trusting the promises of God. Always, always, always. The antidote for fear and a troubled heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.